Hello and welcome to LedgerCast. My name's Brian Krogsgaard. Rolling solo today. Josh is moving furniture, but we've got some great guests on with me. It's the uh, co-founders of the Zero X Project, Matcha. We're going to talk about all of it. Before we do, thanks to Token Sets. Go to ledgerstatuscom slash sets to check it out. They're actually a user of the Zero X API and protocol. You can uh, do asset management directly on to- Token Sets. They've got the DeFi Pulse Index, the leveraged ETH stuff through uh, FLI, and a bunch of other strategies that you can use and check out there at Token Sets. Thanks to Token Sets for being a great partner. Go to ledgerstatuscom slash sets. Now, let's get to the meat of the show, and that's to be joined by uh, Will and Amir, people I've wanted to talk to for a very long time, the co-founders of the Zero X Project, um, in charge of Matcha and other stuff. We're going to learn the whole structure, the corporate and organizational structure there. Hello, how are y'all doing? It's good. Yeah, thanks for having us, man. Oh, man, it's a true pleasure. Yeah. Same, and yeah, thanks everyone for, for tuning in. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to have you with us. So y'all started Zero um, X back in 2017. It's been a heck of a journey. Uh, back then, there was some talk about trading on chain, uh, about DEXs being the future, and then it took like three years for it to become quasi-real. But today, we're seeing DEX volumes competing with the top ex- uh, centralized exchanges in the entire world. So that's got to feel pretty good. Um Amir, why don't we start with you and just kind of get the origin story uh, on how you and, and Will got together and, and how Zero X came about? Sure. Uh, yeah, so uh, my background is actually in trading. Uh, so I uh, started my career at a prop trading firm called Chopper Trading, uh, and later we got acquired by a larger firm called DRW. Um, and uh, yeah, kind of originally got into crypto and, and Bitcoin uh, from from the trading angle. Uh, you know, there was just a, a lot of excitement around the first big run up in like 2014, I think, um, and uh, had had a pretty close group of coworkers uh, who were all just kind of watching it together. Um, but you know, as uh, time went by, I, I just fell deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole and uh, was pretty convinced that crypto was the future. Um, and in, in 2016, uh, learned about Ethereum, just uh, really, really blew my mind uh, and uh, you know, d- decided that I wanted to get out of trading and get into uh, the, the crypto space full time. Uh, so uh, around that same time, um, well, I'll, I'll let Will share his, his story, but um, yeah, uh, one of one of my coworkers and uh, good childhood friends with Will uh, introduced us and uh, kind of hit it off from there. Nice. Will, how'd you get into it? Uh, so I read about Bitcoin, I think on Hacker News, uh, like I, I'm not quite sure when, but it was it was like quite a ways back. And uh, thought the technology was really interesting um, and kind of kept following it. And uh, my wife, uh, who was my girlfriend at the time, was also like really interested in Bitcoin. Uh, and uh, she, she actually ended up joining Coinbase pretty early on. Um, and so like through Linda, my, my wife, Linda, being at Coinbase, I like, you know, 
my natural interest in it, I got, you know, to learn more and more and kind of get closer to the space. Um, and, uh, I was doing, uh, engineering in undergrad. And then I went into a PhD program for engineering at UC San Diego. Uh, and I was kind of on like a research track. I was working at, uh, a government lab called Los Alamos for, a couple of years between undergrad and grad school. Um, but when, uh, when I was in grad school, I just, yeah, became even more interested in crypto. I was like mining Bitcoins in my dorm room because we had free electricity. <laughs> uh, and I had to wear like earplugs cause it was, it was like too loud. I couldn't sleep, but Are you just st- stuck with like it. GPU rigs or something. Uh, no, I actually bought some like used ASICs. Oh, I wow. think they were called, they were called like Spondulies. I don't think the brand even exists anymore. Uh, they're relics of the past. Loud. Hilariously loud. Very loud, very hot, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, then Ethereum came out and it it felt like, felt like, like the most important invention since the internet to me. And so I was kind of just like hacking on Ethereum smart contracts uh, in the evenings. And then eventually it just like decided I needed to pursue Ethereum full-time. And so I, I dropped out of the program and moved to San Francisco. And yeah, I met Amir pretty shortly after. That's cool. Yeah, I uh, I actually had a very similar origin story of hearing about Bitcoin. It, it was all over Hacker News stuff back in 2012, 2013. It was a big bull market that was kind of kickstarting back then. Uh I made the mistake of not really digging in heavily enough back then because I just thought of it as like internet money, like that was transactable. But it took me realizing that Ethereum was a thing, which I didn't realize Ethereum was a thing until like it started to make more retail awareness. So like when it was 2015, 2016, I had no idea. But the program programmability of a blockchain is what really got me excited as a as a web developer to realize that there was a lot more that exists uh, on a blockchain. So that's why it took me until 2017. And then y'all were one of the first projects that I really sunk my teeth into of like researching fundamentally, figuring out what it was. And you were just releasing some of your earliest code, I guess like mid 2017. And you had this plan of being kind of the, the, the rails of um, trading and exchange on chain how long did it take y'all to develop that vision that like actual activity would occur and that it needed kind of this API base layer, uh, that became zero X. Uh, so it actually, it wasn't like, um, we had like some like light bulb go off and it was just like, Oh, like we predict the future. We see this like need for this. We actually kind of, uh, figured it out over time. Uh, by interacting with other teams that were building stuff in the Ethereum community. Um, So when, when Amir and I initially started working together full-time, this was uh, October, 2016. And we were building a decentralized exchange. Um, You know, we we have like this core thesis that like all forms of value are going to end up tokenized on public blockchains so everything like traditional assets, like stocks, bonds, fiat currencies, uh, things that are like more abstract, like reputation and attention uh, can be digitized. 
uh, things like, you know, uh, airline miles, video game items, all that, you know, everything. Um, and, and so that was kind of like our core thesis. Uh, but when we first started working together, there just wasn't really a decentralized exchange uh, out there. And so we started working on building one more so as like our kind of like our own standalone decentralized exchange that we were going to build is like, it's just a product and, you know, it would be like a for-profit uh, venture. Yeah. But as we spent more time uh, at like Ethereum meetups in San Francisco and meeting with teams like uh, Augur, Gnosis, Maker, uh, tons and tons of projects, what we, what we found is that like every single one of these projects required exchange functionality in order to work but exchange wasn't like the core focus for the project. It was just like, Oh, well we need this in, in order to like, like some kind of you know, ship. swap from one token to another so that you could use the app or something. Exactly. Like exchange is like a core part of what they're building, but their focus isn't the exchange component. It's really like, you know, something that enables the true use case they're focused on. Um, and so you know, all these teams were building their own kind of custom decentralized exchanges. Um, and, you know, we, since we were only focused on decentralized exchange, we felt like we had like a really good, like technical approach. It was like really efficient. Uh, we'd put a lot of thought into it. And so our, our thinking was like, why well, have every single project create its own kind of decks when you can just have like a piece of public infrastructure that like everyone plugs into. And if we, if we build that, that's going to have like way more, like a way broader impact than if we were to just build a single standalone product. Um, yeah. Makes sense. Uh, I want to hit pause for just a second because I just want to provide some disclosures. I've wanted to talk to them for a very long time. However, they have been sponsors of our podcast, I guess, uh, for the past year. Um, and then also may or may not hold uh, Xerox tokens myself at any given time. I don't give a crap about any of that. We're here to talk about the the project. We'll talk about some of the token stuff and all that. But this is still just like a regular, normal episode of the podcast where uh, I'm hoping to learn. There was no compensation or anything like that involved here just in case anybody wants to put their negative hat on. Uh, anyway, so I forgot to say that at the beginning. <laughs> uh, I think what I would love to know is how, like how did y'all have to iterate as, as you started to realize some of this vision? And then when did it start to click? Because there was this relayer concept that existed for maybe two years, something like that where people could build a relayer, but it was more of an order book style system. Um, so uh, how did you iterate and when did you, when did you kind of change directions in terms of, of how you would provide support for DEXs? Yeah, a great question. Xerox has evolved quite a bit since the early days. So um, yeah, as, as you mentioned, started out with like, you know, purely this off chain order book model where, uh, yeah, there's this concept of a relayer and they would just like store these off-chain orders like a, you know, kind of like a bulletin board and people could, uh, you know, pick out orders and, and fill them. Um, 
but the relayers were not ever taken custody or, or anything like that. They were kind of like, uh, they were essentially decentralized exchanges that could share liquidity with each other. Um, and uh, pretty early on, uh, after we launched in late 2017, there were a ton of relayers. Uh, you know, I, I think we were, Xerox was like one of the first projects to go live on Ethereum mainnet. Um, and I think there were just like all these companies kind of s- waiting on the sidelines, like, all right, wh- where's like some opportunity for us to, you know, build real products and, and interact with real users. And uh, I think uh, Relayer was like one of the first things you could really build. Um, so, you know, there are probably like 20 Relayers, like within a couple months of, of us launching, um, had like pretty clear developer uh, market fit, I would say. Um, and, uh, you know, through like the, the 2017 ICO era, uh, the, the relayers did like fairly well for the most part. Uh, but then, you know, when, when things kind of died more of the trading activity, uh, you know, started getting concentrated in like the main token pairs. Um, there, there weren't kind of all, all these like long tail random tokens people were trading and, uh, what became clear is that liquidity was uh, a, a real issue. Uh, you know, the, the types of people trading on decentralized exchanges at that time were like very ideologically bought in, but like the pricing was still significantly worse than using a, a centralized exchange. Um, and, you know, providing liquidity uh, on, on a decentralized order book is a, uh, a pretty big technical challenge, I would say, pretty big investment. Uh, and because like the volume wasn't there, uh, you know, it, it was just hard to. But you were making onboard. transactions essentially to establish where you existed on the order book, right? So like you were saying, yeah. I want to sell at XYZ price and uh, and you have to sign a message to do it or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. So you, you sign this off-chain message um, and then, you know, someone could, pick that up and submit it to the smart contracts and, and the trade would be settled. Um, but like, yeah, generally speaking, uh, you know, that, that model does require like professional uh, liquidity providers. Um, but it was hard to onboard professional liquidity providers because the, the volume opportunity was not yet there. Um, so we, we kind of recognized liquidity was an issue. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, there started to like more decentralized exchange solutions started to, to pop up behind the scenes. Um, you know, like Uniswap probably being the, the prime example. Um, there's also uh, Oasis decks uh, from, from the maker team. And, uh, you know, realized that from an end user perspective, like they don't really care where the liquidity is coming from. Uh, it would actually make sense to like aggregate all these things together um, and, and just like, you know, really simplify both the developer experience um, and and kind of the user experience. So we uh, decided to uh, build an aggregation API on on top of zero X that would not only tap into the zero X order books, um, but into uh, all the other on chain decentralized exchanges. Um, and then uh, from there, uh, you know, we we had. Uh, even more learnings. Like we uh, realized that most of the consumers of uh, the Xerox order book liquidity uh, were actually like 
bots, uh, arbitrage bots for, for the most part. They were um, arbing uh, the Zerox orders versus the other on-chain exchanges. Um, and, uh, you know, for, for that reason, um, your, your average customer that comes through a trading UI um, wouldn't always interact with uh, an, an actual order because those would be picked up by the, the bots first. Um, and we, yeah, eventually uh, discovered this new model uh, request for quote system that is essentially much more efficient um, for both consumers and liquidity providers. It's uh, less uh, oriented towards the, the bots. Um, so uh, the way this system works is I come in, I say, I want to buy, you know, a hundred ether um, and then a uh, market maker behind the scenes will uh, give, give <laughs> me just, a, give me a to not be near as much money. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they'll, they'll provide a quote and then, you know, the, the taker agrees to it and uh, can, can fill the order from there. So today where we're standing is we actually have all three models still uh, kind of working in parallel. We have this liquidity aggregation layer, we have the uh, off-chain order books and we have this off-chain request for quote system. And uh, I would say all three of them actually like, you know, still work pretty well, do a, a lot of volume. Um, I think people dismiss the order books a bit because it's not as visible to end users. They are mostly consumed by, by bots, but they still, uh, you know, generally do like $50 million plus in, in volume every single day. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's one of the big things people tend to not realize about zero X is that how it combines these different methods of, of quoting and providing an interface to, uh, to traders. Um, and then I want to dig in a little bit to like how Masha started to fit in with this. Cause you mentioned originally, Will, your idea was let's do just a product. Um, and then y'all kind of shifted to say, well, they, there needs to be something much more expansive. So like at the API level and then matcha was, Hey, well, here's a product <laughs> using our own. And then also, uh, you know, it works as an aggregator. So if the zero X API, um, is the best price for the person using Matcha, it'll use the zero X API, but it may also use Uniswap V2, Sushi Swap, Bancor. I had an order filled today with Uniswap V3, which I thought was cool. Um, I didn't have to change anything. I just used Matcha. So how did y'all decide, like we want to actually be a user of our API, provide that product interface, and then blend all these things together, um, you know, for the, for the trader. Yeah. Good question. Um, yeah, so it was kind of it was kind of like a, a natural transition for our team. Um, we had spent like the first three years purely focused on developing Zero X as a like a developer platform, an open platform, and and our customers were developers that are you know spinning up new markets, and uh, it, you know what we what we ultimately you know, learned is that you know, it's great to empower other developers, uh, but we also want to be able to you know, build a relationship with end users. And we also want to be able to kind of, as you can imagine, like our team had so many like, ideas for products that they wish we could have built for like years and years. Like, when are we going to build something? You know? um, 
And so it, it kind of made sense for us to um, eventually kind of dog food Xerox API by building our own end user product. And it was also just a really great opportunity for us to, uh, you know, get to reach out and, and provide a product to end users and like learn about and, you know, end users, like their behavior. Um, and yeah, I, I would say like, we probably learned more uh, about our own products that we're building uh, since we started building matcha than like ever before, like the entire three years or more that we spent before starting to work on matcha. Um, in what sense just, was it just like because you realized the the aspects of the API that you wish you had access to or what? Um, when it's because when you're building an end user product, uh, you're hyper focused on uh, the needs of your customers, like the, the user experience. How does everything look and feel? Uh, where are like the rough edges that are exposed from, you know, from the underlying blockchain. And, um, you know, when you see that you want to, you know, you, you provide feedback. Uh, and so our, our matcha team was able to, you know, identify areas to improve zero uh, X API and kind of like where those rough edges are and provide that feedback back to the other parts of our team, the team that's building zero X API that's, you know, our team members that are like writing the smart contracts. And so instead of kind of where, where for like the first three years, I think we were much more like technologists trying to build bottoms up. Like what is the, you know, what is uh, the most superior solution from a technology, uh, a, you know, bottoms up technology approach that can create great technology, but it doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, tailor, <laughs> tailor the product to end users and, and their, their experience. So when we, when we started building Matcha, it, it like flipped things on its head. Now, instead of being like a bottoms up technology developer, we're like a, a top down, you know, how do we modify this technology specifically for end users and, and to provide them with like the best experience possible? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, one of the things I found interesting is, you know, I imagine this is also a beneficial experience for all of the other people that are using zero X API, because, um, you know, when you look at who are the, the top consumers, I'm on uh, zero X tracker.com. Um, this is for like of the protocol, I, I guess itself. And if you look at like where, uh, volume is coming from, you still have a lot of other people that are tapping into the API. So like matcha is, I think probably the largest user of the protocol, but it's certainly not the only. And one of the other ones that tends to to be a common user is another aggregator, so a, uh, a competitor to Matcha in one inch. Like so, they're calling on the API itself. So, um, what's it been like to have this kind of mixed relationship where you're a product of of your own API through Matcha, but then also you're still serving plenty of other products, including some competitors of Matcha. Yeah, that's also a really good question. Uh, oh yeah, and if you click on like the apps tab on the left there, yeah, yeah. that that gives like a good view of of all the different apps that are pulling from Xerox API. Yeah, so like Zapper um, and, and MetaMask and you know some of these that um, people probably use in other ways, they're tapping into Xerox on the on the 
on on their trading interfaces as well. Yeah. So so how were you know I, I think our our team's perspective on uh, you know are we you know it, is are we you know should should we be like trying to compete with other teams or uh, you know how do how do we think about it? Ultimately, like competition is a non-factor. Like the opportunity size in the next few years is so much larger than, you know, what it is today. Like there's probably maybe, you know, a few hundred thousand DEX users today. And yeah, there's a lot of volume, but like it's, it's a drop in the bucket compared to what it's going to be in a few years. And if we're able to, you know, if we're able to like power a bunch of different products that are targeting all sorts of different segments of users uh, and providing a ton of different types of, you know, types of experiences and options, like that's just going to help the space grow. And uh, yeah, like a rising tide lifts all boats. We're, we're just focused on like adding value and, and creating value. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so what has enabled the volume to really kick up so much, y'all, do you think, um, on the Ethereum network, kind of despite the fees? <laughs> uh, and obviously, we've seen it on other networks as well. So what do you think has led to this this demand and this desire for people to trade on chain? Selection is first and foremost, if I had to guess. Mm, so like a centralized exchange you know, they just don't ever list your token, but you can go buy it off of uh, an on-chain DEX. Mm-hmm. I think it certainly yeah. started that way, like with yield farming and you, know, you, you kind of had to be on-chain first to to get access to those. And, you know, I think typically centralized exchanges have, have gotten a lot faster about uh, listing some of these tokens. But, um, you know, I think yield farming kind of did kick it off. Like, people started farming all these random things and then all of a sudden everyone's using DeFi. And then, uh, you know, all of a sudden it, it becomes like actually valuable to use a decentralized exchange. Cause you need to like, you know, rebalance from USDC to USDT or whatever to like get some higher yield somewhere. Right. Um, and, uh, that, uh, it, you know, created a lot of volume opportunity, um, which drew in more and more liquidity. And now like it, it just kind of solved the chicken and egg problem. Now we're at the point where there's really, really good liquidity on decentralized exchanges, uh, you know, oftentimes even better than, than centralized exchanges. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of volume flowing through as well. What do y'all see as kind of the biggest problems that uh, DEXs face today? Um, I think that, Fees are fees on on Ethereum are, are still the biggest problem in my mind. Um, I mean, really, really happy that uh, you know we're we're starting to see solutions pop up and and actually get used. Like like Polygon is just like really really nice uh, to to use. It's like you know less than a cent to to make any transaction pretty much. But on on Ethereum layer one, I would say. Uh, fees are, are definitely the biggest issue. Um, I mean, today, on this very day, gas costs are like relatively low, but, uh, you know, historically over the past couple of months, they, they're probably averaging like 10 times what they are today. You know, you need to make like, or you need to spend like 100 or $200 
in transaction fees just to make a trade, like that's going to price <laughs> out a lot of users. And I think what people don't think about is how much it also like uh, prices out developers. Like um, it, it really constrains the design space of, of like what you can build because you're like really, really heavily optimizing your contracts for gas costs and stuff like that. Yeah, one of the things that I thought was pretty interesting as people went experimenting with um, BSC and Polygon and places where fees weren't insane was some of the strategies in yield farming where they did things like auto compounding or stuff where there like were these transactions that you just straight up couldn't do on Ethereum when you're paying like 150 bucks a pop to uh, inter- interface with a smart contract. Do you think that as fees settle down and and generally get f- figured out on ETH that we'll see like a an evolution of the the yield farming strategies that exist? Um, I'm not confident that fees on Ethereum are going to settle down for like a very long amount of time. Like the amount of demand for block space is growing over time. The block size is not growing. Uh, and I, yeah, like I just, I just think like we're in like hyper growth, hyper adoption growth phase for, for crypto and DeFi in general. And like, uh, yeah, I, it's going to take some big changes to Ethereum for it to be able to support more, uh, or users, I guess I was more complex thinking, transactions. I guess I was thinking um, I'm counting kind of layer two type of solutions as part of what that means with Ethereum. Um, I, I do want your take on layer two. Let's uh, get to that first because like y'all just announced this thing with Polygon. Polygon, the Matic chain, I've always just considered it more like of a side chain. So it supports uh, EVM. It's ETH friendly. Uh, it's got that portability. But do y'all like is Polygon in your mind an example of a layer two solution, or is it somewhere in between? And is this you think like the most straightforward path for uh, scalability within the ETH ecosystem? That's a, that's a provocative question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Not intentionally. <laughs> Not intentionally, so, but, but y'all did, you did partner with Polygon, I guess, to, uh, you know, to try to, to promote getting additional liquidity in that ecosystem. And I imagine this is something you'll do kind of across the board as people, if your thesis is basically layer one's going to be crowded for a long time, then it's like, okay, well, where are we going to, where are we going to meet our users where they can actually afford to interact? Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, we think that the future is a network of networks. There are going to be many different blockchains. Uh, different use cases might kind of uh, kind of find their user base on, on specific chains. Uh, but yeah, ultimately there's going to be many different blockchains that exist in parallel. All of them have thriving ecosystems. Uh, there's not going to be a shortage of, of, of networks out there. Uh, when it comes to you know, someone's personal taste or like personal comfort level when it comes to like the security guarantees associated with the specific network. Uh, I think like, yeah, I, I definitely understand where some of the conversations are coming from around, 
you know, what is a sidechain versus what is a layer two solution? Are you inheriting the full security guarantees of, of the layer one Ethereum chain or not? But ultimately, it's a moving target because all of these, all of these technologies, all these blockchains are going to be continuing to evolve and improve over time. Uh, and something that, you know, might rely on like a completely separate proof of stake consensus system today, like could be, you know, anchored to the Ethereum layer one, uh, you know, security in the future. Uh, so for example, something like Matic, but, but ultimately like users don't care. A, a lot of users don't care. Like they, they are not coming into the blockchain space because they have like specific opinions about computer science. Uh, and like that they're coming into the space because it provides them with, uh, the freedom to do something that they want to do and they can't do elsewhere. And ultimately, like if we want this space to grow, uh, we, we need to onboard many, many users. Uh, and over time, you know, things like the security guarantees of a particular network, either those guarantees will change or users will become more educated and they'll, you know, choose where to, uh, you know, park their assets. But, but ultimately like what's important right now is that we, we grow the amount of users in the space because this technology is just so valuable and, and can provide value for so many people. It seems like that lack of, uh, I don't know what you call it. Like the, the, um, basically the user not caring was really proven out with BSC, uh, and like how popular BSC was from a pure transactions perspective, the amount of money that flowed there. And by all means, it's a fairly centralized uh, side chain of Ethereum and people flocked to it because there was opportunity or they could accomplish their goals, whatever those were. Um, so I think that was a pretty good proving ground for that, that lack, uh, you know, that lack of care that, that the typical user was going to have for, various centralization or security concerns. Um, where do you think, well, how do you, how does zero X fit in? Not as it's like a one, two or three chain ecosystem, but it's like 10 or 12, you know, you've got several, uh, layer two solutions that most people that are like really bullish on Ethereum seem really into the two big plays, both on optimistic and ZK rollups, uh, you know, Arbitrum and Starkware and optimistic and all those plus the, the slew of side chains that have caught various levels of traction, certainly including polygon seems to be one of the big ones. Um, what happens with zero zero X and in the, in the zero X protocol broadly as like, you're trying to operate between so many of these, um, what, what's that look like and what are the challenges that you face? I would say uh, the, the long-term vision is like Xerox protocol will exist on, you know, basically every chain where there's activity. Um, and there would be like a central hub that uh, kind of connects uh, all, all these chains together and, you know, kind of governs the protocol across all of these different chains. Um, and, you know, potentially that 
that hub is like a, a kind of venue for uh, trading as well. Um, we actually uh, developed uh, a zero-knowledge proof-based uh, highly scalable decentralized exchange uh, ourselves earlier on, um, uh, but decided to put a pause on it for now um, and, and just focus on like, you know, rapidly expanding to different blockchains and, and focusing on, on user acquisition. Um, but yeah, I think that's the, probably the long-term direction at this point. Does liquidity become a big issue as, as people spread out, you think? Or will you think it'll be buffered by the fact that there's just more mu- users in general coming on chain? I think it becomes an issue for AMMs more specifically because AMMs are, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the ability of, of an AMM to offer good prices and decent depth for a given market is pretty directly tied to the amount of assets that are, are kind of locked up in that market. And if you have 20 different blockchains, each with you know a market for ETH, DAI, or something like that, you know, that, that's going to fragment liquidity quite a lot. Um, but for, for something like Xerox Protocol, where, you know, professional market makers are highly capital efficient and Xerox uh, Protocol, uh, you know, doesn't, doesn't necessarily need to be uh, limited to trading, you know, between an asset, two assets that exist on the same chain. Like Xerox protocol could be uh, repurposed to do things like cross chain trades as well. So uh, if somebody like, wanted to fill like a million dollar order, uh, let's go big and say like a five million, ten million dollar order. I think those are certifiably big in on chain terms. Um, it could basically choose wherever the liquidity existed across chains uh, at some point. They could. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the market makers are the ones that are doing all the legwork behind the scenes to make sure the, there is liquidity available where there's demand for it. So they exactly much, go ahead. Go ahead, Amir. Yeah. So you. So in this scenario, like you know, let's say you're making a ten million dollar trade, and there's uh, you know two million dollars worth of liquidity spread across or uh, on five different chains or something like that. Um, I think what's more likely to happen is you would make this big trade with like a single market maker and they would be hedging on all these other blockchains behind the scenes or, you know, wherever, wherever they're able to find the best liquidity. Um, and like, you know, from an end user's point of view, like they're probably getting the same or, or potentially even better price than they would if, if you were trying to spread that across chain um, just because, you know, the, the end user doesn't need to deal with all the kind of cross-chain complexity and, uh, y- you know, synchronization issues and transaction costs and stuff like that. That's all handled by, like, the, the more sophisticated. If, if uh, somebody wanted to make an order like that today, is that the type of thing? I realize it wouldn't be cross-chain and all that yet, but cross-AMMs or whatever other sources they want to provide. Is that what would be fulfilled by the RFQ system in your, your API? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it could be completely. It could be completely fulfilled by an RFQ uh, order, or it could be partially fulfilled by an RFQ order and partially fulfilled by other sources. How are the uh, 
how are those market makers brought on? Who manages those relationships? Like what's going on in the back end uh, to say like to onboard market makers and liquidity providers for those more obscure quote filling systems? Because it's not like here's all the tokens in an AMM contract and you know exactly what the depth is and how much you can get filled on and all that. This is more like ta-da, here's your fill, <laughs> you know, through this quote. So what's happening What's happening on the back end of that? Yeah, so we we work with uh, several professional mark makers. We have a, a full team kind of dedicated to, to working with them and onboarding them and, you know, improving their developer experience for them, um, working on, like, new liquidity models and, and stuff like that. Um, they're, like, definitely one of our, our most important uh, customer bases. Um, and yeah, always just, you know, working to, to onboard more and, uh, you know, kind of grow the overall Xerox volume opportunity for them. Um, but yeah, at a kind of technical level, the way it, it works is, you know, you, you request a price uh, from the, the API. Um, you know, I say, I want to buy $10 million worth of ether um, that will search all the different on-chain sources, uh, as well as all of the market makers who are plugged into the system. Um, and the market makers will return the best quotes they could provide. And then, you know, our, our routing will uh, kind of optimize the path between the market makers and, and the uh, on-chain DEXs and, uh, you know, spit out the, the best price. But yeah, I would say, um, you know, for the, the pairs that these market makers support, like generally they're providing the most competitive pricing. Um, and uh, the other benefits you get from these quotes is that there's guaranteed zero slippage. Um, you can't be front run or anything like that. You're just, you're just going to get the, the price that they quoted you. Is that um, operating on Macho today? Like if I just went, do I have to go to a special page or is that just right on the main thing? Like if I said I want to sell $10 million of ETH or whatever, it like it's going to run through all the various options today, right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you could check it out. Um, we also, uh, for four pairs, uh, we, we rolled out uh, a new feature. Uh, there, there's now an, an OTC tab. Um, so that will just guaranteed go to the market makers. It won't even search the, the other DEXs. Um, and that's, you know, if you want to make a big trade and you want to make sure you're not going to, you know, get any slippage, you're not going to get front run, anything like that. Um, that's, that's a tab you would use. And, uh, yeah, I mean, like just, just pulling up, if you go to like ETH USDC, um, yeah, I'm on you could ETH USDC check out that. So there's a OTC tab and then I would connect to MetaMask, which I don't want to do right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Understandable. But yeah, like, I mean, right now, uh, you know, you could, you could buy $10 million worth of, of Ether through this straight, OTC Straight tab. through that OTC yeah. tab. Okay. Yeah. That's super cool. Um, how competitive is that with, say, like if I have a relationship with an OTC desk? Like is this going to be pretty similar or um, what? have you done any comparisons on that kind of stuff? We, we haven't done direct comparisons by like hitting up the OTC desk and be like, hey, what uh <laughs> How much would it cost for 10 million ETH? Uh, oh, yeah, no, thanks. We're, we're not interested. Uh, we, we actually haven't done a direct com- comparison, but I wouldn't be shocked if uh, something like Matcha OTC is providing better pricing 
because, you know, we're simply matching supply with demand there, you know, OTC desks, there's a lot of like legwork that has to be done in order to execute large orders. Yeah. They have to seek uh, out the counterparty basically. Yeah. Or be willing to like sit on it (laughs) or be willing to sit on it themselves. Um, but typically right. they're going to have a counterparty that they find for you. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, have you, what kind of testing have you done in terms of what size order can go through those types of things? What type of slippage or not slippage? Cause you said it's not, what type of discount do you basically have to provide on the order in order to, uh, get filled on some of those large sizes? Um, I mean, definitely depends on market conditions and, you know, your, your trade size and, and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, right now, uh, matcha is quoting me for $10 million of ether. It's quoting me, uh, $2,401. Uh, and it looks like the best offer on Coinbase is like $2,400. Uh, it seems, seems really good. Um, <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, that's, that's pretty yeah. good. Yeah, it, I'm looking at another browser to where I actually have uh, MetaMask connected, and it's I'm pretty impressed. I didn't realize this was a thing uh, that it was like I could I could do that right now on on some of the major pairs. Um, but that's uh, yeah, super cool. I think the one of the big value propositions for Matcha OTC trades are, uh, you know, maybe if you went and got a quote, you know, for a market order that is combining all sources of liquidity. Maybe the quote would perhaps be slightly better, maybe, but you are running the risk of being front run or sandwich attacked if part of that order is being routed to an automated market maker. Uh, Whereas if you do a matcha OTC order, you know exactly the price you're going to get. And there's no, you know, nefarious uh, third parties that can uh, do anything to, uh, you know, uh, mess around with, with your trade. I want to I want to dig into the issues trading with size on chain in just a minute. But before we do, uh, how you said there's four pairs right now where the OTC trading exists directly in Matcha. But what's the kind of framework there? Like, do you think this will end up being on like the top twenty or forty or hundred dex pairs? Or yeah, so intend? so right now I I think it's just like uh, ETH USDC, ETH USDT, ETH DAI and ETH WBTC, I believe. Mm. Um, you know, those are the pairs we just know are have, have really good uh, and competitive liquidity. Um, but yeah, I imagine it'll roll out to more. It, you know, we just released this feature uh, about, about a week ago. Um, so it's still relatively early and, you know, just want to make sure there are no kinks in the system or anything like that. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh I look forward to using it, especially like I, you know, I trade a lot. So sometimes I'll switch my bias between like ETH, USD, BTC in a market like we have now where it's precarious, you know, and you're just playing dominance back and forth from each other. So being able to get filled on chain on chain with some relative size and not be worried about sandwich attacks and stuff is, is pretty awesome. Uh, so why don't, can you like just teach the audience a bit about like the attack vectors for on-chain trading? Um, maybe sandwich attacks seem like the biggest thing happening right now, but also potentially what other stuff is out there that, um, you know, the people are, are playing with in the dark forest to try to make money off of on-chain traders. 
Yeah, I, I think sandwich tax are probably the main one. Uh, I've, I've seen these on uh, Binance Smart Chain, Polygon, like they're pretty sophisticated bots on, on all of these chains doing it now. Um, so the way that works is, um, let's say I am uh, making a trade on Uniswap and I set my max slippage to 1%. Uh, I submit my transaction um, and the bot sees, okay, well, this person is willing to pay 1% more. So I'm going to front run this user, push the price up by 1% uh, so that they pay, you know, the, basically the worst price that they're willing to pay. And then immediately after they get filled, I'm going to sell it back to Uniswap uh, and, and basically, you know, lock in some, some free profit. So they, they, do both like a, a front run transaction and a back run transaction, hence the sandwich attack. Um, and that's and, all, yeah, all, I mean, that's all in one block basically, right? Because it doesn't all, have yes. to be organized in a certain way to occur. Like, is this? Yeah, can continue on. Yeah, so it, it all happens in one block, and then there's like new technology that has made it even easier to you know, provide some guarantees for these bots. Um, so uh, there's a, a project called Flashbots where, uh, you know, you can kind of bypass the regular Ethereum uh, fee mechanics and, and kind of like bribe miners directly to, um, you know, to, to create like, or to mine specific bundles of transactions so they can get like really strong guarantees that they're going to get a transaction in immediately before and after the trade. In the same yeah. and and the example that Amir provided is like relatively tame, like the one percent slippage. Uh, you know, hear horror stories about people that are trading on like less liquid pairs, and in order to do a trade, uh, you know, that isn't very tiny, they have to set slippage to ten or twenty percent, uh, and you know, they'll get attacked, and more or less ten or twenty percent of of the trade proceeds. Um, are are more or less extracted from them by these these bots. Do y'all have a lot of familiarity with flash bots? Like, is there a way for traders um, to win or bypass or participate in order to get through some of this stuff, or is it just kind of a, a problem with the ecosystem that's difficult to solve? Uh, use Matcha OTC so that you get a price locked in and uh, I didn't mean it for no the minor extractions. <laughs> there, there, there are like a number of interesting solutions and uh, around minor extractable value and yeah, there, there's a lot of like really interesting work going on in that space. I think like without getting too deep into the weeds what I would highly recommend, you, you know, all users or all viewers do is uh, go to matcha.xyz and uh, click on the OTC tab uh, so that you get exactly the price you're quoted. Zero slippage. <laughs> uh, yes. I mean, I'm not going to argue that. Um, one of the types of trades where I guess it was the most common way to trade on DEX before. And then with AMMs, it basically went away. Uh, and now it's kind of slowly coming back is limit orders, right? Because, you know, previously it was a, 
here's what I'm willing to sell for. And someone comes in and decides that they agree to do that on the old, like order books on chain type of system. The AEMs are this, just these liquidity pools where everything just splashes down and you get what you get. And there's, it's always kind of a taker system uh, for the person making the trade. Now y'all have an option for limited orders. Um, there are other um, options where people do limited orders. It seems like there's different takes on this, and I'm I'm curious what it's like because this is one of the ones where it's been um, I've had some good like perfectly good experiences on matcha, and some where I didn't get filled because they didn't get like exact price matching. So it seems like that was kind of y'all's mandate with how you structured those. And there's some some places that you can go and some aggregators, like I think One Inch operates this way, KeeperDAO's trade mechanism operates this way, is where basically as soon as your limit order becomes a good enough arbitrage for someone to make money while filling your order, then they'll fill it. So but you don't you don't you just don't have a guarantee of getting the best price or like exact match. What are the approaches to limit orders? What the heck's going on in that in that landscape and why have y'all chosen to approach it the way that you did? Yeah, so that's actually fairly similar to how limit orders work on Matcha too. So, you know, I, I create a limit order and, you know, there's just an open market for arbitrage bots to, to come in and, and they're going to fill it whenever it's profitable for them to, to do so. Um, but, you know, the side effect of that is that you're not going to get filled at the exact price all the time because, you know, let's say gas prices are really high like if I, if I place a thousand dollar order and it costs $200 in gas to fill my order, well, I'm, I'm just never going to get filled. Right. Mm. Um, okay. So, so when it doesn't fill, it's, it's typically because like some elastic component of that equation, like makes it to where it just exactly. meet the criteria. Exactly. And it's like pretty difficult to explain that to end users, I would say. And I, I don't think, there's really a, a perfect system for it, uh, but generally, you know, moving limit orders to more scalable solutions where, where transaction costs are lower, um, you know, they're, they're going to be much more reliable. So what do you think is the future for, for limit orders in the ecosystem and like an on-chain ecosystem? I think limit orders are extremely valuable uh, I, I think solutions like AMMs are ideal uh, if you if you just want to get liquidity and you don't have you're, you're not very sensitive to pricing. Uh, you can go to a mark you know an AMM and you can consume liquidity whenever you want, just in time. But there are some people that do want to set the price uh, that they're selling their assets at, and uh, you know I, I think that. That is something that many, you know, many traders want to be able to do. Uh, so I, I anticipate that uh, limit orders, you know, up, all forms of different liquidity are going to exist in parallel, and it's just going to create a healthier market in general. But limit orders specifically, I think that you know, especially with uh, more scalable networks, they're going to become uh, more and more commonly used. Yeah, that makes sense. Another element that I've uh run into with limit orders on chain before is basically they will only fill what they want to fill, right? If it's someone coming in and triggering this as an arbitrage. So say you set a limit order for like a hundred ETH, you might get filled for like 
98 <laughs> for some reason, you know, like, uh, so traders, I guess, have to have the kind of different expectations for what they're actually going to get filled on because it's not an order book system. It's not the same as a centralized exchange. Um, have you all seen that or is there any workaround that you know of to be able to basically get like kind of complete fills on things like that? Yeah, I, I have seen it. Uh, I mean, theoretically you could have different like limit order types. Like you could potentially have like a, a filler kill type order where that, you know, it's like 100% or nothing. Uh, but maybe, you know, it's harder for our arbitrage bots to, to kind of manage that. Um, yeah, overall, I would say, uh, there are a lot of really interesting things you can do with limit orders if gas costs aren't an issue. <laughs> like, like back in the day, I, I remember it was like 2018 or 2019, way before it's time. I remember we released, uh, margin limit orders where you could actually like place a limit order um, and, and when that was filled, it would actually like borrow the funds, uh, in that same transaction to, to fill the order. So you could like essentially trade on leverage with, with limit orders. Um, it was using the DYDX smart contracts. Um, but like those never panned out, uh, because I mean, one, I think it was before it's time, but, but two, it, I think it costs like a million gas to fill those orders or something. It's just like never, never going to be feasible. Um, but yeah, you could also, you know, conceivably have like filler kill orders. You could have stop loss orders. Stuff like that. Yeah. Earlier this year, I mean, like it, it was extraordinarily painful trading on ETH layer one. Uh, like the fees that you could pay were just extraordinarily. I don't recommend any active Dex trader to go to fees.wtf and see what they've actually paid because <laughs> it's it, it it got pretty brutal. Um, which leads me to ask: Do you think that? Um, do you think that the majority of zero X protocol, uh, trading will actually be on non ETH layer one trades in the near future? Um, it's a tough one. I, I think the number of trades, uh, probably will be higher on, on non, uh, you know, non ETH layer one. Actually, I'm pretty sure we have more trades on Polygon since since launching on Polygon than, than we do on Ethereum. Wow! But in terms of like dollar vol- volume amounts, like it's still much, much, much higher on Ethereum. Um, and I kind of envision it being the same thing. I, I like this uh, analogy of like you know Ethereum being a big city. And then there are like all these suburbs or, or whatever where like cost of living is is lower, um, but you know maybe you're giving up some of the advantages of a city. Um, and I think for like really high value transactions, uh, people will probably use Ethereum because it just has the, the highest security. Mm. That's interesting. Um, let, let's dig into the ZRX token for a minute. The token itself launched in 2017. Um, I, th- I think y'all did a uh, an ICO or a, some kind of token generation event. You had investors that received tokens. Um, y'all are backed by some of the pretty big names in the ecosystem. Um, and it was one of the earliest efforts, I think, at like a raw governance token. 
uh, and it still has it meets that criteria today. Like y'all, y'all still have y'all y'all have more active on chain governance than you I think ever had before. Um, what is the what's the main use of the token today, and and uh, how do people participate? Yeah, good. So good questions. Um, yeah, so we, uh, we did do a token sale back in 2017. And actually one thing that I think is worth noting, I, I think we ran that in a, a pretty interesting way where, um, you know, everyone that wanted to participate had to register up front ahead of time. And uh, what we did is we basically, uh, you know, set the amount that we wanted to raise based on how much funding we felt that we needed uh, to see the project through. And then we divided that amount equally up amongst all of the people that wanted to participate. Oh, so we, we guaranteed that, you know, anyone that wants to participate can, and there's no, uh, you know, it, it isn't like some, you know, a small handful of whales kind of scooping up all the tokens or anything. We wanted broad distribution. We wanted uh, anyone that wanted to be a part of the community to, to be, uh, in, you know, one of the earliest stakeholders. That's really cool. Um, I, I didn't. I yeah. wasn't able to participate in the in the sale, but uh, the first CRX I bought was actually like the very first day it ever traded, which was on Liqui. I don't know if y'all remember that exchange, but uh, uh, yeah, it was a different time back then. RIP Liqui. Um, so y'all have been. Uh, so that was a y'all had a pretty fair distribution of those tokens, um, and I guess a lot of your investors too are from an equity perspective as well. Like y'all did a fifteen million dollar raise earlier this year. Um, but nevertheless, what's the, what's the primary usage of the token today? Yeah. Uh, so when, uh, earlier in the conversation, we talked a little bit about how, uh, we kind of transitioned from building a product, a decentralized exchange to a platform that would allow anyone to build a business on top of this platform. Anyone could, you know, spin up markets on top of the protocol. It's an open standard. And uh, one of the things that was very clear to us in those early days is Ethereum is in its infancy. This technology is, is going to continue to change at breakneck speed. Uh, and it's probably going to always be changing. And uh, the smart contracts that comprise ZeroX protocol, they're going to have to change too. But smart contracts are immutable. So <clears throat> what, uh, what is going to be necessary for this protocol to remain viable? It's going to have to be built in a way where parts of the system can be replaced over time and upgraded. Um, but this is a key piece of financial infrastructure. So if you were to think about, you know, uh, you know, like ha uh, having control over, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm spacing on the name right now, but, you know, if, if billions of dollars are being moved through this pipeline of contracts every day mm -hmm. uh, and there are dozens of businesses that are relying on this set of smart contracts, it's really important that, the entity that has control over upgrades isn't a single for-profit entity or a single, you know, small group of stakeholders. This smart contract system is critical and it needs to be controlled by a broad set of users and stakeholders. 
And so, you know, even in the white paper that we published in February 2017, you know, we made it very clear that like governance is going to be super, super important for smart contract systems in the future. We're just not there yet. So it just doesn't feel important yet. But, uh, you know, if you think about, you know, who has the ability to modify the compound smart contracts where there's billions of dollars inside of it. It's yeah. like, like, of, of course you need to have governance. It's like, it's like, it's a no brainer. Um, so, so first and foremost, you know, we knew that governance needed to exist, uh, but ZRX was never purely a governance token. Uh, we also, you know, knew that the token had to provide more utility beyond governance and so actually when we first launch, uh, launched, the token was, was actually a payment token. And so the intention was that these relayers, these uh, entities that are you know, allowing people to post off-chain orders and then you know, broadcasting those, those orders to other people, they would a- be able to collect fees uh, denominated in the ZRX token whenever you know, a trade is completed. But... Uh, you know, I, I think we were like pretty naive at the time and, you know, very quickly learned that, uh, you know, s- someone that's going to trade on a DEX, they don't really care where the liquidity is coming from. They just want to go and do a trade. They want it to be simple. Uh, they want a good price. And the idea of having to, you know, purchase a specific token in order to pay for a trade, uh, it's just like, additional friction for end users and they don't, they don't want to do that. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we had to change the token economics uh, away from being a payment token and governance token to being a different economic model and governance token. Uh, and with, with uh, version three of zero X, which we launched, I think in late 2019, uh, the token e- economics changed and uh, they changed in a way, I guess it's, it's quite similar to like, it's quite similar to the, the economics associated with like an AMM almost, but, uh, but I don't think people think about it that way for the most part, because most people aren't professional market makers. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, the protocol collects a small fee on every single trade and uh the bulk of those fees go to professional market makers that have set up these pools. And those market makers uh, are able to more or less like increase the amount of, of that fee revenue that they, they capture by sharing some of it with token holders that uh, stake their tokens with them. And so, you know, there, there's some complexity in terms of the finer details, but at the end of the day, what it ends up doing is, it, the protocol rewards market makers proportional to the amount of kind of liquidity they provide in the system. Uh, and it rewards token holders uh, as well with like a percentage of, of kind of all the fees that are generated. Are token holders essentially agreeing to like uh, almost like bond their tokens to a particular market maker or do they just stake them in general? Uh, the former. Yeah, that's correct. So they, you know, if you have a specific, if you have some ZRX tokens, you can choose to stake them with uh, one or, you know, you could spread them out over multiple different market makers to share in their fee revenue. Gotcha. So the also, go ahead. 
also by by delegating to a market maker, you're you're also giving them fifty uh, percent of your voting power in the system, um, and then you know voting power uh, can be used to like govern this this treasury. The Dow currently valued at I don't know ten to twelve million dollars. Um, and then voting on top of that would be people that make a proposal to say, here's what we want to do with the treasury and all the people that are uh, bonded to those, those market makers or whoever delegating those votes. They essentially are the ones who would vote on what to do with any of those funds or, or how to make changes, broader changes in the protocol. Yeah, that's right. And, and it could be anything. They can make any change they want, it, in, including like changing the economics. Uh, and, but yeah, what, one, yeah, Amir made an important point around how uh, kind of half of a token holder's voting power is given up to the market makers. What this ends up doing is that it gives the, the market makers that are creating value for the protocol and the token holders, it gives those market makers a, a lot of influence over decisions. And that's important. Um, it's important to avoid uh, token holders, you know, trying to push through changes that could be kind of purely extractive or that would, you know, basically do damage to these these teams that are, are directly creating value for the protocol. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. So in terms of the changes that they could make, like do they have direct control, for instance, like on what the fee would be that a, um, a market maker receives when they fill it, when they fill a trade? Um, so like what the protocol charges to, if, you know, if someone's getting filled through the zero X API on MetaMask or something, they could change the fee that, that, feeds back to the system? So, yes, there are going to be... So there are basically two different uh, ways in which governance occurs today. Right now, um, changes to the way the protocol works, uh, those changes are determined by, uh, you know, token holders the same way that, you know, uh, any other change would occur, except instead of having those votes happen on chain and be binding on chain such that, you know, there's no way for anyone to uh, kind of like prevent a, a malicious thing from going through. Uh, instead, you know, people vote off chain. And then there is a kind of like a multi-sig contract that goes and, and you know, executes those changes that the community has uh, voted to approve. When And obviously, changes to the protocol are very security sensitive. So we want those to be binding on chain. We don't want to have you know, any po you know, points of control, uh, but we also want to be careful about transitioning that power uh, over to you know, being binding on chain. When it comes to the community treasury, the community treasury is just a pool of financial resources that is controlled by token holders. And uh, right now, it's, it's like a big chunk of ZRX tokens and MATIC tokens. And uh, token holders can do whatever they want with these resources. And the uh, votes, in, votes on how those resources are used, those are binding on chain. So there's literally nothing that we can do or anyone can do 
to stop token holders from spending those funds how they want. And, you know, I think something that would be pretty in, a, a pretty intuitive change in the future is a percentage of all kind of uh, fees that are generated by the protocol should be uh, diverted into the treasury. Um, I, I think that would be like a pretty natural change at some point in the future. Yeah, I think that would be really cool. And then another thing that I, uh, I, I brought it up in the Xerox Discord at one point, just asking like if it was possible would be, um, this is just my dream scenario, right? Uh, like essentially there were two things that I felt would make sense supporting Xerox's own life on chain. Um, one was to essentially incentivize liquidity, uh, people who provide liquidity on chain for ZRX itself uh, by like accepting the liquidity tokens as a stake in its own right. I thought that would be really neat. Um, I mean, I can't remember the other one, but I had another idea too. Yeah. Those are the types of things that people could propose in a governance vote. Yeah, we, we actually have a, a governance forum. Uh, and I, I think I had a topic on, on some, on a similar idea uh, back in the day where you could stake with either like uh, LP tokens or like, uh, you know, compound or Aave tokens and, and kind of take advantage of multiple things at once. I think it's a interesting direction to go. Um, but yeah, I yeah. think there, you know, generally there are a lot of, there, there's a lot of room to uh, expand the economics. Um, you know, so when they were first introduced, it was like end of 2019 or so, uh, quite, quite a while ago. Uh, at, at that point, the predominant liquidity model within zero X was only these, these order books. So that's where the, the fees are being charged today. Uh, but, you know, since then the aggregation has been introduced, our few has been introduced, uh, and, you know, they're starting to make up a very large proportion of the volume. Um, you know, pro- probably, I don't know the number off the top of my head, probably 80, 80, 90% of the volume, um, and there, there are actually no fee mechanics on, on those particular trades yet. So there's a lot of uh, discussion on, on our forum around you know, how, how fees would flow in, in and out of the system across like, all the different liquidity models. So if there eventually was uh, an added fee for people that are using those tools, then that, could, that would funnel back, or theoretically, if it was voted on, that could like funnel back to the primary treasury and then be used to in, in whatever way that the, the token holders vote. Yep. Yeah. I think exactly. one of the weird misconceptions of zero X has been one that there's never been any kind of token value accrual model in the system or Avenue for being able to establish further uh, token revenue or revenue to token holders. Um, and then the other, I guess was pri- that like, uh, that governance wasn't like a significant um, operating factor in, in what happened. And I've seen Will, like you've ha- every now and then like gotten heated up on Twitter and started responding to people like, well, here's where you can go to look at this and see like how you can make these proposals or see the token value accrual models that exist. And um, in comparison, like in Uniswap, for example, like there is no token value accrual today. Like they make a ton of money, but there's nothing that establishes this in terms of like where the that money goes, like rewarding token holders. Um, so there seems to be like a significant discrepancy in terms of uh, how these various tokens work 
in DeFi and then like where the where the revenues go from those protocols and who has control over that stuff. Is there any other like clarity that y'all would like to provide in terms of what's possible? Uh, what's I mean, possible for any, anything yeah, in particular? Yeah, for, yeah, for a for a protocol like this where it's open governance and you know it generates revenue as well. Well, that's one of the really exciting things about DAOs. Uh, and, and, you know, one of the reasons like we've been super excited about the idea of DAOs, you know, for years now it, is that, you know, it, it's a group of people that can be located anywhere in the world that can be anonymous. And uh, they just, you know, happen to have, you know, they have an internet connection and they can coordinate to decide to do anything they want. So, and this, this community of stakeholders have control of a vast pool of, of financial resources. And they also have control over a piece of, of financial infrastructure and they can make changes to that. And, and so I, I think that, you know, anything is possible. Like, and that's like one of the things that's going to be so exciting about watching DAOs that they start to mature in the next couple of years is DAOs are going to start doing all sorts of like interesting and, and wacky things at times, I'm sure. Uh, and uh, it, it's going to be like a really interesting uh, trend to keep, you know, keep eyes on. But as far as like the ZRX token and the economics uh, and, and uh, the treasury, you know, I, I, I hope that um, I hope that stakeholders focus on what can we do to have the largest impact long-term. We have all of these financial resources at our disposal. We have this amazing piece of technology that can literally change the world. It can disrupt the way markets currently work and it can allow new markets to form where they never could before. And uh, I, I hope that the stakeholders would see the opportunity uh, long-term uh, rather than focusing on, you know, squeezing out like some small, you know, farming gains or something over the next three months or whatever it is, and then kind of fading into, uh, you know, in just kind of fading away. Um, yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh Amir, anything you wanted to, to leave us with as well before we before we head out? Um, I mean, just just want to you know reiterate what Will said. Like, literally anything is possible with the smart contracts, um, and uh, yeah, I hope hope people understand that. I think uh, one of one of our challenges has always been that there are many many moving pieces in zero X, and I think it's harder for your average person to understand all the things that are happening and that that could happen with it um and uh yeah i i would love people to keep an open mind get involved in these discussions and you know actually drive the, the protocol forward as much as possible awesome uh well i have to tell you i i really appreciate y'all uh spending time with me and describing more of the the mechanisms of the project to me i've been a fan of uh the work that you've been doing for a long time as a trader uh i've always liked trading zero x it's it's fun on my side i know that's not y'all are long long term holder only type people for the most part but um 
it's a project where I really like to be able to trade stuff where I understand the, or I believe in the technology that underlies it um, before anything else. So um, I've been admirers of the project. And then, of course, you know, I know y'all sponsor the podcast uh, as well through the, the Matcha brand, which I think is like a best in class uh, decks. It's one of the easiest things for me to be able to promote as a as a podcaster. So. Uh, it's a fantastic product, and I appreciate both of y'all being with us today. Um, if people want to learn more, you can go to zerox.org. They have kind of all the details uh, about the the protocol um, and information on on that there, and then of course links off to uh, matcha and and everything else that you may be interested in. Thank y'all both so much for being here, uh, and I guess we'll catch everybody next time. Awesome! Thanks, Thanks so much, Brian. Thanks. Have a good one. Monuments crumble